You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. everyone and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten and today I'm joined by Kirsten Lopez and Emily Long. Hey ladies, it's so great to have you here. So our topic for this evening is maintaining long distance relationships. So, I mean, we all, I'm sure we have all known people that we either meet on, you know, a dig somewhere and they're just amazing and then they go away because the dig is over and you go home and maybe you never see them again, but you want to keep in touch or uh, you have all of your friends at home and archaeology is kind of at its nature, a job that involves a lot of traveling. So... How do you balance the the requirements of the job to travel with trying to keep in contact with all of the amazing people we meet? It's definitely difficult. I mean, like you said, it can be a real challenge considering how much we travel, the crazy schedules. Um, I've definitely seen on certain projects, if you're working with the same group of people for like four months and you're working with them eight days on and then you're six days off and then you come back for eight more days and then six days off and you do that for four months you feel incredibly close and then they're gone and thank goodness then for stuff like facebook um because i'm personally i am terrible with keeping up with um people outside of you know facebook (laughs) and uh, i'm terrible about calling and so i i'm i've been surprised and pleasantly surprised how great social media has been for our kind of lifestyle. It helps you keep in touch with people um, and provide ways to get together. Like if you see everybody's going to the SAAs, you can be like, oh, we're, let's all meet at the SAAs. And, or if you may never see them again, at least it's a nice way to keep in touch. <laughs> yes, I would definitely second that. It's kind of funny actually just the other day just this last weekend a bunch of us in the northwest um had a little event we like to call anthropalooza uh, which is an annual get together of a bunch of us that have met in the field and we have people traveling from nevada and washington to this little town in uh, the central valleys in oregon to hang out have a beer chat and each year it brings, uh, you know, can bring, you know, 20, 30 people. I think we had uh, 15 or 18 show up this year. And it's just a lot of fun. Uh, we see each other at conferences unexpectedly. It's kind of fun to see, like, at events like that or even at conferences where you know someone, like person A from a dig in the Southwest, and then you meet person B that you went to field school with, and then you realize that, like, they know each other. 
and mm -hmm. that's the the small world thing that's kind of fun um but i think it's it's one of the ways at least that i've seen like having those the kind of a network feel um it's just you know not just uh, facebook and social media but also being like oh you know how so-and-so doing i saw you guys you know were out at a dig or a project um last week or something. It's definitely great. I was at a conference back in November where someone who I didn't realize was, was going to be there, um, who's actually from another country. And yeah. I mean, Canada, so <laughs> <laughs> same continent, <laughs> you know, but it was like the most absurdly happy moment of oh, yeah. the, the conference was just like, oh my God, you're here. <laughs> And that can be the best part of those conferences and get-togethers more so than, you know, be like, I'm going to present this amazing information I've researched and accumulated and look at the product of my master's thesis or PhD thesis or whatever, or a poster. The best part is actually just seeing everybody. It's like a wonderful excuse. Just be like, let's go out to lunch. Let's get dinner. Let's go see this one area. And you actually end up skipping more of the conference than you intend because you just want to hang out with all these wonderful people. And then there's also media like uh, what we're doing right now. We're on Skype. Um, you know, not everyone records their Skype conversations. <laughs> and hopefully hopefully you're telling people if you are. <laughs> right? Uh, no secret recordings, anybody. Uh, um, so many inappropriate spy jokes running through my head right now. <laughs> um, but, but you do get to, to meet people. I, I mean, some of you may be surprised in some of the people who are listening. Most of us haven't actually met each other in person. Yeah. Um, I have met, uh, Sarah after she moved to, to this area um, Sarah I'm super of Archie Fantasies. Yes, Sarah of Archie Fantasies. Um, and I'm super excited to meet Kirsten in person at the SAAs. Yes. But guys, we're maintaining long distance relationships on the podcast. <laughs> Good job. Go us. Yes. Like internet high five. Woo. <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of outreach, which is great because I, I feel like a lot of people don't realize quite how isolating archaeology can be uh, in terms of our work, um, whether it's we're um, surveying at, at a park and you're doing a lot of that survey work on your own or even with maybe two other people, but that's pretty much it. Or if you're working for a CRM company and uh, you're completely taken out of, you know, your, your home, your typical everyday life, your zone, and thrown in with maybe just a couple other people. And if you don't know people right off the bat, it can be frightening in a way and isolating. And so it's great when you can get crews that right off the bat say, all right, we're all in the same situation. We're friends. Let's do this. We'll, we'll chat. We'll have fun. We'll get our work done. And then you go. And then you're back home. And I feel like some people are able to adjust to that really well, some aren't, and some are in the middle. I find myself in the middle many times where it's just you're like, I want to go home and be with my friends. And then other times it's you're making new friends and it's a lot of fun and you're talking to new people or 
people you're literally they're your work friends you only see them at work while you're serving 16 miles a day and you just chat up a storm so I, i think it's hard to almost describe our work life in a way because it is incredibly different from your stereotypical you know working five days a week in an office. And I mean, and I think that goes true for even lab work. A lot of the times you're in a very specific area for a certain amount of time and you may only have your colleagues around you. So I think it takes a certain amount of imagination and adjustment to do that kind of lifestyle and to make friends and be comfortable. Yeah, definitely. There's so with CRM work as a technician, and even as a crew chief to a certain extent, depending on your situation, that constant look for work is definitely synonymous with uh, meeting and working with a new set of coworkers every project. And sometimes even within a project, you know, people leave to go on to something else. Um, I've had like people where you have. Uh, couple members of a crew end up getting shifted off to another project and then new people are kind of inserted and it's you know you have a flow with a group of people and then you're constantly adjusting to new people new personalities um and how so when you have a new group of co-workers that you're getting to know and you're working with and you get along real well with uh, if you're constantly readjusting to a new group of people, it can be difficult. And I've known some people that get discouraged by that and then don't, like you're saying, they don't maybe adjust well to it. And so they don't put as much effort into um, getting to know new people, uh, but they'll, you know, get along with others. And so it's, it's a constant adjustment. It's great to meet new people and to see old friends again, because that's something else. I remember there was a gal I worked with uh, on my, my first big project, like 20 people. It was a huge crew. And we were out doing subsurface survey, and then I never saw her. And, you know, we were on Facebook, but we didn't know each other super well, so we didn't really talk on Facebook a whole lot. And then we ended up like five years later getting put on a different project together and it was just almost like a little um reunion like hey how's it going (laughs) i haven't seen you since this project or the the awkward situations where you're running into people and you're like okay i know i've met you and they're like yes you i know i know you (laughs) what project was that i don't know was it this project and it takes you like days to figure out Mm -hmm. Or it's even worse, you recognize them, but you can't place them. And you're just like, you. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it can be challenging, but it's definitely rewarding, um, I would say, in a lot of ways. But that deepening the relationships uh, can be challenging uh, and keeping that constant contact. But definitely you have to have sort of that, if not personality, then the ability to to kind of, you know, not having seen someone for months or years and see them again and be like, oh, just pick up where you left off. Um, and that can be challenging sometimes, but by and large, I find that most archaeologists have that ability to be, mostly because we're all doing sort of the same thing. Like you said, we're all in the same boat of like meeting new people all the time, constantly adjusting to new work situations. Um, and 
like you said, with research, if you're doing lab work, I, you're like, your best friend is a microscope or <laughs> <laughs> it isn't as much a super social environment most of the time because you're trying to focus um, in a different sort of way. And that can, like you said, be very isolating in its own way. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a constant give and take, uh, but needing to be flexible is paramount. Going back to one of the things you said earlier, Emily, is that oftentimes when you go on these digs and whether you are doing lab work at a particular place or doing um, excavation at a particular place because you're with a group of people and you have to get so comfortable with one another so quickly because mm -hmm. you're going to be spending the next week, two weeks, two months with these people, you learn a lot about them very quickly and you learn to develop fast friendships that are maybe more than what you would get in a in a regular office environment where you get to work eight hours and then you go home and you know you don't necessarily know that uh Jane Doe over in the corner uh you know talks in her sleep or somebody <laughs> sleepwalks or snores or uh, you know, there are a lot of things that are surprisingly <laughs> intimate, maybe, that you learn about people um, while you're doing excavation, depending on what kind of arrangements you have. So when you lose that closeness and that familiarity very sharply at the end of a project, uh, it can kind of like be a little bit of a shock. I know mm -hmm. when I came back from my my first field experience trying to like reintegrate into the real world mm -hmm. um it was like tricky and being able to call the people that i'd been there and been like are you struggling as much as i am like, <laughs> yeah. why aren't people spending their entire day talking about stratigraphy mm -hmm. like <laughs> what's going on conversations that would outside the field be incredibly strange and awkward for a coworker in an office to hear they'd be like why are you telling me this whereas in the field you're like whatever so yeah, yeah. it's learning to put the filter back on too well it's definitely a cultural shift i mean you have this group of people whether it's field school uh like living in tents or living out of hotel rooms with the crew and CRM crew, your work life and your after work life is the same people. <laughs> so yeah, the sleepwalking, the snoring, the, you know, so-and-so knocked on my door at 2am because of something or, you know, the TV on in the next room or, you know, you can go on, but it's definitely, it's an intimate living experience with different people and I, I have to say, yeah, from my first field experience from my field school, I still keep in contact with all of them Oh wow! Um, through Facebook. And um, a couple of people are still just as active and also grad students elsewhere in the country. And we run into each other at conferences and, you know, try and make time to, you know, at least message each other every now and again. <laughs> like, I'm a big proponent 
partly because of this lifestyle, but I'm a really big proponent for Christmas cards, holiday cards. That's nice. I send like 30 cards every year. And of course, because I'm constantly meeting new people, that goes up. <laughs> so, and part of it's because there is a certain intimacy with cards and with like handwritten mail. And this is something that people have talked about for a little while is it's a nice touch to be able to reach out. And it's kind of like getting a quick hug or something in passing. Aww, that's nice. <laughs> because it's, you know, we, we see each other on Facebook maybe every now and again, but it's not quite the same level as running into someone even just briefly to say mm -hmm. hi. Out of curiosity, are some of the longer-term friendships that you both have created and maintained um, during these long field sessions, are they mostly with women or men or both? Like, do you find a little bit of both at the same time, or is it mostly one or the other? I find it's kind of both, but ironically, most of the people I've worked with are women. And see, I'm the opposite. Yeah. Most of the people I've worked with are men, so we don't have, it's not, maybe not the most PC, the same, PC thing to say, but it's not the same. And so it's like, I don't feel that like, I need to send Bob a postcard or something, you know? <laughs> so I was just curious if that, <laughs> if that was part of it. Yeah, that it could be. I mean, some of it is the firms that I work for, um, like, one firm I work for employs a lot of women in the office and as crew chiefs, mm -hmm. it's their a majority. Um, and they try and run their crews and split 50, 50 when possible. But you know, when it field techs are short, it's not easy <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> to balance that. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I, I do find that it's, rare that I am working on a crew of mostly men. Not to say it doesn't happen, it definitely does, but I would say out of all of the, the jobs I've had, that's pretty common. Um, uh, and maybe it's a West Coast thing, a Northwest thing. I've also found that I work with a lot of LGBTQ um, folks as well, which I haven't heard a lot of. Uh, and maybe it's just that, some, you know, it's not something that's discussed often, um, but in, in a lot of these gender conversations as to, to field work or field crew, or field chiefs or PIs having, you know, certain jobs and that um, balance, I find, and like I said, maybe it's just a regional thing that I run into, is it's mostly women, um, but there is, as far as because I came to archaeology kind of later in my career, as a second or third career, uh, compared to other workplaces, there's more people who are LGBTQ, and I find it really great, and it's a nice adjustment uh, comparative to other, you know, like sales or real estate that I've done. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have to say I have worked... So bioarchaeology is, is a little bit different than um, kind of your strict archaeology, and we do do more lab work and I think the the field experiences that I have had in bioarchaeology which have been more 
lab-based than excavation-based have all had a, a slightly larger female percentage than, than males. Although I don't know that who I keep in touch with, I'd say is probably about 50-50 as well. But uh, going to Kirsten's point, I have actually also found a good number of LGBTQ colleagues either, you know, in the lab or in the field. So I don't know if that's a, a discipline-wide thing um, or whether that is just it, um, regional, except that I'm on the opposite side of the country from you. And I'm in the Southwest, I, and, I, and I think it's maybe just where I've ended up in different companies. I've primarily worked with men a few women and so those friendships are a little bit different than a typical female relationship I guess but it's a little less fewer hugs than I give like like when I work with um one of the fantastic um women where I work one of the crew chiefs our conversations are so different and fun and you know just different and then with the men it tends to take a very different direction <laughs> it's a little more dude-ish <laughs> in the field and I know that sounds very stereotypical but it's kind of how it seems to turn out but not in a bad way it's just very uh, different relationships um like I have a couple of the guy friends that I've made that I have kept in touch with it's just a different relationship than some of like my closest girlfriends um that I've made for over the years so I was just curious. Yeah, and I have to say, for me, some of the guys that I've kept in touch with, I have kept in touch with because we maybe were archaeologists, but were also swing dancers or were also something else. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the females that I have met and kept in touch with, the the point of contact has just been archaeology, but... I could see if you were working in an all-male crew, really treasuring the other women who are on the, the crew with you and maybe going to them uh, when there are things that your male coworkers maybe don't want to hear about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's great. There was a time, like, the, this other gal and I, our period synced up and we were just, like, chatting away about it. And, like, the two other guys on the crew were just like, oh, my God, why are they talking about this? Make it stop. And we're like, ha, 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 we'll talk about it more. Yeah. Um, that is always really interesting. And, and, yeah, you throw several women together in those hormone cycles. They will definitely start sinking. Uh, mm. On that note, we are... <laughs> done with our first 20 minutes so we'll see you back after the break hello apn listeners today we have some exciting news the center for digital archaeology pcs and codify have teamed up to create an exciting new online training program built especially for you visit digitaltraining.site and you can sign up for free interactive office hour sessions to get help and share ideas about everything from digital photography to drone usage in archaeology, and even tips and tricks on how to prepare for your next job interview. We're offering deep dive, two-hour webinars, and intensive single-day workshops so that you can truly level up your skills. This is cutting-edge training provided by experts in the fields of digital imaging, cultural resource management, business practices, and more. 
Courses will fill up fast, so visit digitaltraining.site today and see what we have in store for you. That's digitaltraining.site. We look forward to learning with you. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far in this episode, we have been discussing uh, some of the difficulties in maintaining long-distance relationships in the fields. We've been talking a lot about friends that you make in the in the field or friends that you might have at home. Um, I think we're going to segue into uh, relationships, um, boyfriends, girlfriends, partners, fiancés, husbands, wives, whatever terminology you want to use. Um, I know there's a lot of it out there, significant others, but you can, there are definitely some complications, <laughs> there can be complications with significant others when you're gone for months at a time. So, so I think, Emily, you're managing to do this pretty successfully. Um, yeah, but I mean, fortunately, my fiance and I st- now live in the same house, you know, in the same area, which is fantastic. Um, and that was a hard decision because with uh, relationships, when both people are archaeologists, usually one has to figure out what to do if you all want to live in the same state, at least. But um, for a lot of our relationship, um, before we got engaged, I lived in a completely different state. And would not see him for about six to eight months out of the year. We might get to visit each other twice. Oof. And, uh, and then I'd then go to him during my season off and we'd be together, you know, like hopefully like four months and then back, back out West. And it's incredibly hard. And I'm sure even in the CRM field, and I experience this now, even the eight days off, like, somewhere else in a different state um where you're just you're gone and sometimes completely out of cell phone range and you can't even call your significant other even that's difficult Uh, so it can be incredibly challenging uh fortunately for me my my fiance is also an archaeologist he did the crm life he works for the government and has to sometimes go out for a project for a couple days and so it's really great when you can have somebody who understands that you have to go. You have to go for work. And it's just part of life. And in, when you can weave that into your relationship that that's just normal, then it's not as big a deal. And as they say, absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> and honestly, yeah. I, I kind of enjoy it every now and then because when you get back, you're like, it's you. I love you so much. I'm can't, I just can't wait to see your face. Oh, and then you get to a point where you haven't worked, you know, for maybe like two months and you're just waiting for the next project and you're like, I hate your face. I want to, <laughs> I want to go away for at least eight days. <laughs> and then you get to. Um, so there are positives too, where you can get away and you can have a TV all to yourself and the internet all to yourself in the bed, all to yourself. It's like a spa, an archaeology spa where, you know, it's physically demanding, but then you get the perks of HBO and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, generally speaking, it can be incredibly challenging. 
And the way he and I just look at it is that you just, you make it work. The the Tim Gunn motto, if you if you ever watched Project Runways, you would always say, make it work. And that's kind of our motto. It's like, we just we make it work. And if I have to be gone for a period of time or if he has to be gone for a period, period of time, we make it work. We call as much as possible. We leave each other notes to find, um, you know, while the other one's gone. Uh, email, Skype, you just, you make it work. Yeah, there's some definitely perks and drawbacks and, and there's different situations. So currently, um, being a grad student, I do teaching at a field school over the summer for three months or two months. Um, and then I do, you know, field work and uh, lab work with uh, CRM firms outside of that as well still. And with my partner, we have, so when I'm at a field school, I am off grid completely. There's cell phone service there. We, you know, go up to town out of the canyon one day a week to do laundry. <laughs> and that's when I make my phone calls. I call my partner, I call my daughter because she's with her father. Um, and that's a whole other level of relationship to keep on tabs um, with this job that can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. And, but with my partner, I mean, we, he's grew up a traveler. And so we do really well with the, it's nice to take a step away. And it's, I think, a good practice that I think even those who are not travel at bugs and work away from home like we do um, should practice every once in a while. You, or every once in a while, you don't need to know uh, or be next to your partner every single day or every single night. And mm-hmm. while it can feel nice, I think it's really good for people to step away because it gives new perspective and it, it does reaffirm your appreciation for the relationship. So like when I'm gone, especially for the field school stretch, he'll show up randomly without like completely unannounced (laughs) and bring something like chocolate or uh, I think, what was it? Last year he brought ingredients to make sushi by hand. What? and we were living out of tents, so I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> he had like four days off and decided to drive out, you know, eight, ten hours to see me and save the, you know, his time off. And the feeling to make that extra step to do stuff like that, to be like, wow, I really do enjoy this person and I want to to go and impress that again. I mean, we've been together off and on for a decade and it's continues to be, you know, it doesn't have to get boring and old after two years, you know, it's it's something that like, if you're constantly, you know, gone and come back and, uh, you know, it's reaffirming to, at least in my experience, that the relationship is healthy. And it gives you time if something's bothering you to reframe and, uh, you know, ask questions and have those conversations that can be difficult if you're, you know, looking each other in the face every day. And with my daughter, she is now a teenager. Um, But when she was younger, it was challenging. Uh, I had the support, luckily, of family and friends who would have her for... I, and this was another challenge is I didn't go away for very long during the school year. I would have her um, 
a stay with a friend for a weekend. I usually didn't do more than two or three days away at the most a week, and that was very rare. Um, but she would stay with friends nearby that I knew and trusted and talk to her every night uh, from the hotel room. And we were able to, you know, even as a teenager, she still appreciates me so far. <laughs> <laughs> and wants to hang out and wants to spend time together. I don't have, at least, like I said so far, this all comes with the caveat of she is not done with her teenagerhood. <laughs> but, you know, I haven't had a lot of those problems um, of I hate you sentences. And that's, of course, not guaranteed for everyone. But I, I definitely feel like I'm closer with her because we have, we don't see each other every day all year long. Uh, and that's, you know, another dimension. But that's definitely been something that because it's been that way kind of always, um, we, we have a stronger relationship. Both of you have touched on the ability to to go away and, and do your own thing and come back. And I think that, I mean, that's that's important because if, if you don't have the ability to step away from your relationship and come back to it and the, the trust in the other person, you're just not going to last mm -hmm. in archaeology. So I think it is maybe only the better relationships or the stronger relationships that, that might last. Um, but I have, you know, when you talk to, to friends and a lot of them, their parents may be divorced and the ones that are still together, a lot of them say things like, oh yeah, my mother would just go away for two months sometimes because <laughs> she needed a break. Or my father would go on, you know, a seven week business trip. And it was fine because, you know, you made sure the kids were taken care of, but they were always happy to, to come back together and to share whatever they had experienced while they were gone. But uh, you kind of can't have that level of codependency. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm like the, I'm going to sit over here and be the odd person out uh, because I, I don't date a lot. <laughs> um but when I have been in relationships while attempting to do field work, it hasn't ended well. We've all been but, there. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you definitely have to have someone that isn't going to be groveling and, like, uh, uh, for you to come home and be like, I miss you so much. I can't stand to be without you. Like, that doesn't do Right. You know, or the, this thing is happening. Are you going to be back? No, I said I wasn't going to be back. Oh, but it would mean so much if you could be back. But yeah. I won't be. And like you. Yeah. The guilt to to just know that. Um, and I think a lot of that is just highlights the importance of finding someone who understands what the archaeological archaeological lifestyle really means and is OK with it. Because I think there are people who think, oh, yeah, and in theory, that sounds great. But, you know, it's, it is a very different situation when you say, hey, I'm going to be gone for two weeks or two months. And I'm not going to have cell phone reception. And I'm not going to have Skype. And there is no mailing address and I might be able to mail you a postcard or two when I happen to be on 
you know, surely we're going into town to do laundry, but you're probably not really going to be able to talk to me for a couple of months. And can you deal with that? Yeah. I think part of it too is, I mean, if we're, we're going to be honest, I mean, archaeologists, we're kind of an odd bunch. <laughs> and I've definitely talked to a lot of people where um, if their partner isn't an archaeologist, they're usually in a kind of similar field or similar lifestyle. If it, as you know, um, another ologist, geology, biology, um, something that also requires a lot of field work, or they're also an academic, or they're a professional rock climber, and they do a lot of outside stuff, and they just go off and do their own thing. And it seems like a lot of the relationships, and this isn't true for everybody by any stretch, but it just seems like a lot of the more successful relationships are the ones where the careers are relatively similar in terms of the lifestyle because otherwise it is incredibly difficult to understand and relate um what the other person is doing you know but i know my partner for everybody by any stretch <laughs> my partner is an rn <laughs> so that's long hours that's long, it is hours long away out. yeah and he's very big on experiencing and traveling and doing so that's definitely a big, I think, uh, fall in my court, at least, in the understanding portion. You, just, you hope you find somebody, I mean, whether it's a significant other or a great group of friends that just get what you do, at least at some level, so that you've got a good support network whenever you come back home, or if you're working with them in the field. I've met married couples where one is the crew chief and the other one happens to be on the crew, and they love it. I personally would probably kill my fiancé if we were in that kind of situation. Because <laughs> I'd yeah. be like, don't tell me what to do! Or vice versa, he'd be like, don't tell me what to do. It's like, I'm the crew chief, I don't care! You know? Yeah. But, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's great when you can have somebody who really gets the experience, and then when you start, you know saying, oh, today I dug a shovel test to 50 centimeters and found five flakes. They're not going to go, why? They're going to go, okay, cool. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was a good day. <laughs> you found well, five flakes. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. But you, I mean, you bring up an interesting point that it's it's great if you're married and or maybe for some people it's great if you're married and you're working on the same crew. But then there's the the opposite problem of let's say you have two academics who both understand the demands of the lifestyle and um, one of the, the women in the planning group for this, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, but she mentioned it, um, is that you don't always get to work in the same college, the same city, the same state, sometimes the same country as your significant other. And if you're taking an academic job, that's you know, two, two semesters a year that you might be on opposite sides of the country. Or I worked uh, with an individual who had accepted a two-year postdoc in the U.S. whose partner lived in Australia and they didn't see each other for two years. And, and some of this 
at, at least with a postdoc, you can say, oh, it's two years. There's the end in sight. If we can make it through this, you'll come back or I'll find a way to go there. But if you have two people with tenure track jobs and one's in California and the other is in New York and academic positions are, you know, kind of hard to come by these days. Yeah, that's a rough go of things, definitely. Uh, and that's not, oh, well, in two years I'll be back. That's a plan for the bulk of our careers. And oddly, or I guess a lot of people might think it odd, but that's that's actually not super uncommon. Um, I've met a couple of professors that have partners elsewhere in the country or elsewhere in the state, and that's something that in the academic world I think is becoming more common Um, with it becoming more challenging to find work because you're more willing to take whatever you can get. Um, And not everyone is as picky. Um, You also find the situation to where one partner will get a tenure track position and might be able to negotiate a, another uh, faculty position for the partner. That doesn't always happen. I've seen it happen a few times. It's usually a smaller <laughs> position, not the full um, mm-hmm. tenure track. Uh, but I've seen it's it on rare occasion can happen. With I think last I heard, granted this was like five years ago. I'm sure it's changed since then. But you know when you get 200 applicants for an academic job and they're all qualified. It's it's a pretty high competition, and it's it's hard to get really anything. Um, And with, of course, as we go into this future, we're not sure where all that's going. Um, So no one's trying to, you know, shake it up too much, and they're generally staying where they are. Um, But, you know, there's there's ways to make things work, and I think that's the big takeaway is – if you can't and if you're finding that, you know, there is someone, a significant other that you're with or someone that you're dating that has no tolerance um, for a change in plans, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, has to know where you are at, at all times or has a tendency towards jealousy of any sort, um, it's just not going to go anywhere. <laughs> that has to be, mm-hmm. Those have to be things that you have to attend to before you can really kind of venture into that because, you know, you're working with people of all sexes and genders in the fields and you're living with them for extended periods of time, which often ends up falling into, uh, you know, you hear about this, what stays in the, happens in the field, stays in the field, which is BS. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's BS. <laughs> it does I don't know. It's a small community. Word gets it around. Is. Exactly. It's a very small community. So it's like, yeah, it doesn't happen. But, <laughs> you know, it's if, if someone is going to be constantly suspicious, it's not going to work out because you're going to feel guilty or whatever. There's, it's just not going to be very positive. It's not going to be a positive healthier. For sure. So that actually brings us to the end of our second segment, Uh, but we will continue to talk about this when we come back.
Kim Biddulph explores the books set in our prehistoric past on Prehistories, an innovative and creative show. Kim investigates the archaeology and anthropology behind your favorite stories by bringing on guests that are experts in the field and that can speak to the actual story behind the story. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories. Now let's get back to the show. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. In the last 20 minutes, we were talking about some of the difficulties with long-term relationships and the archaeological lifestyle, Um, although some of us are better at uh, navigating that than others. (laughs) But we've all been there, the the difficult part, the good part. I mean, everybody goes back and forth. So if you're in the bad part right now, don't worry, it gets better. Yes, but moving on, we're going to talk about some of the other relationships um, and things that might tie you to home. I know we talked a little bit about kids in the last 20 minutes, but we might touch back on that and um, pets and anything else that makes it hard to leave. Mm-hmm. Well, and just to say, we are hoping at some point to do an episode on children and just families. Uh, Chelsea and I can't really talk too much about that (laughs) but we will get people too and hopefully you guys will listen in and be able to hear more about what it's like um to be archaeologists and with families but my i i have a a fur baby uh, (laughs) a term a lot of people don't like but um my my uh fluffy princess my dog my dog lucy and it, it is really hard to leave pets when you're in the field. Um, and I genuinely, I can't imagine leaving an animal when you don't have a, the, the support to have somebody taking care of it. Um, when I did field work in a different state from my fiance, I would take my cat and he would hold on to our dog because he was home more often than I was. And um, I, I took our cat with us and, or with, with me and, it was hard trying to find like really good caregivers for her when I would have to be gone for a few days to a week at a time, two weeks. And I remember really struggling with that. Like I desperately wanted to have her with me, but at the same time being very worried while doing the field work, like was my cat okay? I know I have this person A, B or C looking after her and she loves that person. And I know they're spoiling her, but She's still, she's my cat, my pet, and is she happy? And I know um, now it's the same thing, even when I go on these long CRM projects for eight days, my fiance is looking after our dog, but I still worry about her. And I know he takes crazy good care of her. She's horribly spoiled and gets tons of treats. And maybe that's more of my worry is that like she's, going to be really fat by the time I get home <laughs> and to be like, our dog is diabetic. <laughs> Stop giving her so many treats. But uh, it can be really, really hard to be away from one's pets because there's just something about a cat, a dog, uh, what have you, whatever your your pet preference is. There's just something about your pet it's really hard leaving them and those those big eyes staring back at you being like, why are you leaving me? They are kind of like small children you can't take anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I say this as a mother. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, so I had a cat for a long time and I would find it challenging to find people to even just drop in and feed her and water her regularly. Like I'm like, she's a cat. She's not that happy. Um, but she did end up, uh, when I would be gone on longer stretches, she would, uh, end up developing anxiety issues. And that was a challenge with mm. trying to attend to that, um, to where she'd start, uh, like she would clean so often that she started to lose fur in certain spots. Like she'd overclean the back of her arms. Sort of. Oh, poor kitty. And that's, I, I was really like, I don't know what's going on. And the vet's like, well, this is a, a common sign of anxiety. Are you gone a lot? And I'm like, yeah. So um, that was when it was just my daughter and I. And since my partner and I moved in together, we've got two cats. And with, you know, he's got a regular-ish uh, job that he's home. You know, he doesn't travel away from home super often or for extended periods uh, like I do. And so he's usually pretty good about taking care of Oh, and we have a fish. Yes, my daughter just <laughs> we have a fish. Um, <laughs> we also had an ant farm for a while, but that didn't last very long. <laughs> as far as the... The pets go, but yeah, fish has been around for a few years. The cats are a couple of years old at this point. And, but yeah, the with two cats, it's helpful to have someone else there um, rather than having someone stop by and feed in water. Uh, and that's where uh, it was challenging before. But you know, I that's actually the reason why I won't get a dog. I love dogs. I just have never owned one in my adult life. <laughs> Um, because I know that I'm away from home too often to give as much care as is necessary. And like you were saying, Emily, like your partner has the dog, uh, <laughs> because he's got more of a stationary lifestyle, uh, mm -hmm. than you do. So it's, it's one of those things that I recognize that they need a lot of care and attention that I can't give. Uh, I've known friends who had to give up animals, not like... I couldn't uh, do it. No. It, oh, couldn't do it. And some of that is they realized they couldn't take proper care and wanted them to have a better person, mm -hmm. better caregiver, uh, which you can't do with kids. <laughs> <laughs> this baby's right. just getting too hard to take care of. You want it? <laughs> uh, and I had a good support network of family. And because her father and I uh, aren't together, she would actually spend long periods of time with him and this that freed me up to do a lot of work in the summer and then during the off season I would only take a couple of days at a time uh, and she usually just stay at a friend's house for the weekend or for, and that ended up you know as I mentioned before fostering a, a pretty close relationship uh, I like to think anyway with her um, and as a teen you know she's adventurous so most of the year, most so through the, the school year, um, she's with me and I help her with the schoolwork and all that. Um, and I'm usually only gone for a couple of days a week and hold down a, a museum job or sales job or something during the winter oftentimes before I went back to school again. And that seems to have worked out pretty well because I can be here for her but still have that ability to travel um, during the summer. Uh, the, the other plus, too, is that 
has definitely fostered, I think, a sense of adventure and ability and confidence to go and do things. Um, during my undergrad, I did an internship at a museum in Europe, and she came with me. It was just her and I, and so she went to school uh, out there and wow. hung out with me sometimes at the museum. But that, you know, travel and being able to do things and kind of play it by ear. I have a distinct memory when we were going, we ended up taking a short trip to Edinburgh and I was, we were looking for a specific place because at the time she was really into Harry Potter and she wanted to go to the Elephant's Cafe, which is where the first couple of novels were written. And I'm looking for it and I have this map and I'm like trying to figure out where all the streets are and where we are on the map and it's raining and she's like seven at the time. She looks at me and she's like, mommy, are we lost? <laughs> I'm like, yes. <laughs> and so her response was like, okay. <laughs> like, it will get unlost. Right now, I'm not sure where we are, but we're figuring it out. And that was at least, you know, there was no panic. There was no, like, oh my God, we're in a new place and we don't know where we are. You know, that hasn't been an issue. So that's been a, a plus. Yeah, I mean, I. I think that that's an incredibly value, valuable experience for someone to have to to learn that you know like it's okay we can be lost and it's not the end of the world it'll all turn out fine <laughs> um, and that sense of ad adventure and that kind of bravery yeah it's definitely a great experience um, you know and going back to what you said about dogs and them requiring a lot of work i have a dog um what and, kind? And, uh she's a twelve mix oh so uh, she's a little thing yeah she's like 16 17 pounds and she's like mostly really quiet except every once in a while she barks and she kind of sounds like a rottweiler and it's really <laughs> funny <laughs> <laughs> yeah That's so, yeah she's a sassy little thing I like her. Um, if she decides that you're not paying enough attention to you to her, she'll start like petting you with her paw and just like kind of tapping you. And if you <laughs> ignore her for long enough, she'll get really annoyed and she'll just start tapping your face because <laughs> she's sassy. Um, okay, you talk to me. Yeah, I'm here. Exactly. Um, my dog does something similar, but she's 50 pounds of fluff and, and dog, so it's a little little harder to ignore. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's pretty hard to ignore. You kind of have to, like, really commit to it to see how far she'll take it. But it's really hard to, to leave her, and luckily, uh, you know, I have a lot of good friends um, in the area, and I don't live, like, too far from my parents, so I can always drive uh, little ways to them and and drop her off if I'm going to be gone for a while. And she doesn't seem to mind too much. Oh no, I was gone for two months last summer, and she was super pissed when I got home. <laughs> she was she was like real excited for about five minutes, and then it was like a flip switched, and she was like, "Oh right, you left." <laughs> <laughs> I hate you right now. Hatred. Yeah. <laughs> But it is, I mean, it's hard to, to leave your dogs and um, I am more lab-based and 
more of an academic. It, it, it that's lucky. I would know for me on different projects, I make my fiance take pictures of her dog, and I'm like, just send me a picture of her. It'll make me yeah. happy. <laughs> oh yeah, I I brought my phone, you know, to the Canadian Arctic with me. Uh, where there was no cell phone service and no internet reception, and my phone was basically going to be useless because it had pictures of my dog on it. Aww. <laughs> yeah, I have um, some friends that actually have uh, what they like to term a field dog, mm-hmm. to where or field dogs to where they bring them in the field to survey. You know, these are larger than than Chelsea's dog. <laughs> 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 um, and. You know, if they're well-trained and are used to the outdoors, then it's kind of a neat experience um, being on a crew with some dogs because they can, they, <laughs> you're not going to have a whole lot of, you know, angry wild animals creeping up on you. Um, and if so, then they have a sacrificial lamb, unfortunately. <laughs> um, that was probably bad today. Um <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's a fun situation. I know a friend of mine when she first took her dog out into the field the first couple of times, her paws got a little worn out because they weren't used to it yet. Um, so it takes some some wearing the dog into being used to being outside walking for that long. It's, mm-hmm. it's like any human even like doing twelve to sixteen miles in a day can be difficult and exhausting and uh, wearing physically uh, and dogs are no different with that uh, one of the challenges of course if you do have or want to bring your dog into the field is getting and booking and having the power a to book a hotel room which will accept your dog mm-hmm. and if the um, company you're working for allows allows pets because I've um yeah. the company I work for does not allow animals on the projects whereas other companies do and so it really yeah. depends it does it's there's a wide variety of uh, companies out there that accept different things uh, mm-hmm. I actually yeah and then I have you know there's other companies that I work for where there's just there's dogs in the office all oh, the yeah. time Lots of dogs. <laughs> One office, of I think, has like dogs in the office, which is great. Yeah, it's super fun, and it definitely creates a different atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not impossible, uh, but a lot of that depends on how much traveling you're doing, and you know, if you get a lucky job like Chelsea has, where you're uh, it's somewhat more stationary, it can be a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. And just one quick thing about um, dogs in the field. Don't forget, so if you ever decide, um, hey, I'm going to try out this field work business and I'm going to take a dog, get your dog a doggy hunting vest. A lot of Uh, areas we do surveys in, there are even off hunting season. There are people shooting stuff all the time. And so get some good rolls of orange flagging tape, get your dog a hunting vest, wrap them in flagging tape if you have to, um, make your dog ultra visible as well as with their tags so that people don't think it's a stray if they run into it, if it's running around or um, spray. I mean, there's certain kinds of like hairspray paints you can put on your dog too. that just make them ultra, ultra, ultra visible just to be safe. Yeah. And they do have those hunting vest colored, uh, like, uh, pack, uh, 
uh, vests mm-hmm. where you can make them carry some of your stuff. <laughs> because can they head. carry a screen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Obviously, many different types of relationships in the field from people, friend, friends to pets. <laughs> all very important, all requiring work. Although sometimes some time away makes you appreciate what you have a little bit more. Just always remember the advice of the fashion guru, Tim Gunn. (laughs) Make it work. Right? Isn't that really what it's all about? Yeah, just making it work. On that note, um, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. Ladies, unless you have any final thoughts. Make sure to stay, like, use the tools of the modern age when you can. Facebook and other things to help you keep in touch with your peeps from far away. That's definitely a good perk, I think. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Some good advice, ladies. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. It was wonderful, as always. Lots of fun. And uh, Looking forward to next time. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening! This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.